0: Welcome to Podcast Sounds Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise.
1: Before we get started, does anyone want to get out?
0: I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb, coming to you solo today. Today's episode is Sentinel of Liberty, in which I go over my favorite MCU film, 2014's Captain America, The Winter Soldier. We'll get a little into Cap's comic origins before diving into the film, and of course, there are some Metal Gear parallels to shout out. But first, our spoiler warning for this episode. I will be spoiling Captain America, The Winter Soldier in full, and pretty much Captain America's entire arc, which goes through Endgame, and a bit of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We won't be discussing any of the more recent Marvel properties with spoilers, however. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel is due, And the red and the white and the blue will come through when Captain America throws his mighty shield. So why this episode? Well, most of all, I want to. Captain America: The Winter Soldier has been one of my favorite films since I first saw it in 2014 in no small part due to how many allusions to Metal Gear I found therein. I've always been a Marvel fan, anyone who listens to me knows this, having read over 10,000 comics in my lifetime, conservatively. And while I enjoyed the MCU prior to The Winter Soldier, it was this film that made it day one appointments for me going forward, at least through the end of the Infinity Saga. My attention and adulation has been waning a bit following Endgame, but that's a topic for another day. Of course, I also wanted to do this episode as a thank you to all my patrons who've helped and supported me during a turbulent, life altering period in my life. You can have a little bonus episode as a treat. And lastly, well, I truly believe in sharing the few things I truly care about with you. That's the pleasure of doing a podcast and caring about the art that we do, with all caveats about corporate art created under capitalism. You know, higher role. So let's dive in. First, a brief history of Captain America, though I will say his creation is probably amongst the most famous in comics history and thus more widely known. The original version, Super American, was created by Joe Simon in 1940, though he switched it to Captain America, given all the supers already flooding the comics genre. Steve Rogers would be the captain's name, and Bucky Barnes would be a part of it from the get-go, modeled after Simon's real-life friend, Bucky Pearson. This was all happening at Timely Comics, and when Simon was given the go-ahead to write these stories, he worried his artist and creative partner might not be able to meet the deadlines. Simon wanted to bring in some backup inkers and artists to ensure deadlines were met, but adamantly, his partner insisted he would make all the deadlines. His partner kept his word, and Captain America took off. Oh yeah, that partner? Jack Kirby, a forever king of the comic book realm. Captain America No. 1 was released in March 1941 with a cover depicting Cap punching Adolf Hitler. This was an explicit political statement from these two Jewish men at a time before America had entered the war properly. This is among the most famous comic book covers of all time, along with Action Comics No. 1 and Amazing Fantasy 15, the debuts of Superman and Spider-Man respectively. By issue 2, Captain America would have his distinctive round shield, he carried a badge like S.H.I.E.L.D. in number one, which was depicted in Captain America, the First Avenger. And by issue number three, they needed to hire someone to do some filler text, and that someone was Stanley Lieber, aka Stan Lee. This issue also introduced Cap's S.H.I.E.L.D. returning to him on throws. And though Cap can do this all day, I cannot, so I'm going to condense 60 years of history into a few paragraphs. Following the war, superhero comics fell out for a time, giving way to romance and pulp comics more attuned with the late 40s and 50s. Captain America spent much of that time fighting communists, which, boo, but this eventually faded into obscurity and would-be retconned to not be Steve Rogers. Timely would become Marvel Comics during this transition period. March 1964 would be the next big stop on the roadmap, where Captain America would be reintroduced into the now Marvel Comics canon in Avengers No. 4. This issue would lay the backstory of Cap being frozen in ice after he took down a drone plane during World War II and would remain in suspended animation until his body was discovered in part due to Namor, King of Atlantis and former World War II buddy of Steve Rogers. Though Steve wasn't a founding Avenger in the comics, he became the leader right from the start and is perhaps the most Avengers associated of any one character, as the other original members, Stark, Hulk, Ant-Man, and the Wasp, and Thor, would take regular hiatuses from the team, but Steve remained a staple. He'd go on to share a title with Iron Man called Tales of Suspense, and on issue 100, that became Captain America's book, and eventually Captain America and the Falcon. Highlights since include the 1970s run of Cap, which, as appropriate to the Times, fit in with the general paranoia thriller aesthetics of movies like Parallax View, Three Days to the Condor, The Conversation, etc. There was even a post-Watergate storyline where the big bad was revealed to be a Nixon analog, and that POTUS killed himself in front of Cap, and Cap would then briefly give up the Stars and Stripes to go under the name of Nomad, a soldier without a country. This was briefly referenced in Cap's Infinity War storyline. Mark Waid then had a solid run on him during the mid-90s, but the big moments really started rolling in 2004 when Ed Brubaker took the Captain America reins. First and foremost, he brought back Bucky Barnes from the Timely Era comics. Bucky had been part of the Marvel canon, but was treated as officially dead in the same accident that put Cap on ice. He was one of three Marvel characters that supposedly would stay dead forever, along with Uncle Ben and Gwen Stacy. The latter has returned in multiverse variation form, however. But Bucky wasn't just Steve's friend upon return. No, he was the Winter Soldier, a fan-fucking-tastic name for a character. He had spent the last 70 years being a secret weapon of Russian oligarchs, an assassin and a hitman as needed, and put on ice when not. The Brewbreaker run also featured the Civil War storyline, which pit Marvel heroes against each other and would also get its own movie, and most of all, the death of Captain America in Cap Number 25. This is one of the few issues that broke into mainstream news because it was the death of one of the most famous comic characters. The death wouldn't be permanent, as instead of being shot with a normal bullet, he was shot with a magical time bullet that transported his consciousness away for a while. Comics! In the interim, a new good guy kinda Winter Soldier would don the Stars and Stripes, and Winter Soldier cap design was pretty fucking rad. More black, more guns. Steve would eventually come back and take the mantle, leading the Avengers as comics barreled forward into the 2010s. Eventually, the super soldier serum that made him was removed, and he began to age into an old man. At this point, he'd go on to become the commander of S.H.I.E.L.D., while his partner Sam Wilson, aka the Falcon, became Captain America. Eventually, a Cosmic Cube, Marvel's go-to MacGuffin and Cap stories, essentially the Tesseract for film folks, would restore Steve Rogers to his youth, but as the Cube was commanded by Red Skull, secretly remade him into a Hydra member ahead of the much-maligned Nick Spencer Captain America run, famous for its first issue ending with Cap saying, Hail Hydra! Though this run sucked, in part due to Nick Spencer's milquetoast centrist politics preventing him from saying anything worthwhile, we did get a good bit in Endgame, where Cap says Hail Hydra to trick Sitwell and Rumlow into giving him an infinity stone. Small W's, I guess. The good Cap would return and go on to be written by Tanahisi Coates, but at this point is kinda where I started falling off my regular comics reading about six months into the pandemic. While I wasn't in love with Coates' run, legendary artist Alex Ross was doing the covers, and they were worth collecting in and of themselves, which I did. While I incoherently intermingled narrative and publication history, a lot of these points should be familiar to most MCU fans. Much of his origin and war days were properly captured in Captain America the First Avenger, with the slight adjustment that Bucky disappeared prior to Steve going into the ice. And Haley Atwell brought the role of Peggy Carter to life so well that it forced Marvel Comics and TV to reevaluate and reprioritize her character but I also think it's worth sharing some of my own history with Cap, both before and after the MCU. Anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s probably didn't think too much of Cap. His title and The Avengers were at best B or C tier comics, as most readers were more invested in X-Men, Spider-Man, and Daredevil. I do like some of the comics around this time, the Wade ones I mentioned, but it's not in my elite circle of comics either. I think what cemented Cap for us as kids was his appearances in various Marvel cartoons, Spider-Man or the Hulk, and others I'm surely forgetting. But in those, he was more Grandpa Cap, an old fuddy-duddy who showed up to lecture you to do the right thing. He was nowhere near as cool as Wolverine or funny as Spider-Man, so he was an afterthought, really. And though I was not some quote-unquote woke eight-year-old, the idea of a hero wrapped in the stars and stripes just seemed kind of gross to me, Ah, this is jingoism personified, American exceptionalism, someone who scolds you to say the Pledge of Allegiance. There was nothing for me, a brown kid, to find value in here, so I mostly ignored him otherwise. I should note, however, that one thing every comics fan knew was Cap's origin, the metal pod and the Vita rays and how he went from scrawny to brawny. I'd seen his origin recreated several times in the comics, and even the Spider-Man animated series depicted it in the 90s, and that scene looks jarringly similar to the one in the first Avenger. One of the first things I came to love about Cap was his origin story. It's one of the few truly fixed to a specific period of time. Almost every other hero's origin is on a sliding scale, somewhere from 5 to 20 years prior to the current comics timeline. Even heroes created in older wars like Tony Stark and the Punisher have seen their origin slide from the Korean and Vietnam Wars into the Gulf War and War on Terror. But not so for Cap. He's always been very tied specifically to World War II, and what's more, the origin becomes even more poignant the further we, re- we remove ourselves from the 1940s. When he redebuted in Marvel Comics, he had been in the ice for like 18 years. Jarring, but no big deal. But when the MCU has him emerge in 2012, seven years after the war, the whole man-out-of-time pathos gets that much heavier. I really like that aspect. The Brubaker comics were the big shot in the arm, as they helped move Cap into the modern age with compelling stories. Following 9-11, Cap was doing a lot of counter-terrorism stuff that hasn't aged terribly well. It also revitalized core parts of the Captain America mythos but now I want to speak to his first two appearances in the MCU, The First Avenger and The Avengers from 2012. The First Avengers, especially now, remains one of the best-looking MCU films as it has vibrant colors and a distinct tone and visual style. They were very smart to grab Joe Johnston as director as his previous film credits included Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Rocketeer and you can see the DNA of both in this film. Raiders might be my favorite film, which certainly helped The First Avenger in my mind. Though I love The First Avenger now, I only merely liked it back then. But one thing was clear. The first act, the origin of Steve Rogers and Captain America, was perfect. No notes. From Steve failing his army physical to getting beat up by bullies but not standing down, the trash can shield, all great. And then Stanley. Stanley Tucci as Dr. Erskine comes in, and we go, next level great. Steve's training is just fantastic beat after beat, from pulling down the flagpole to jumping on the grenade, exclamated by Erskine's, a good man speech the night before Steve's transformation. Although Tucci is in this film for like 15 minutes, it is a magical 15, properly setting up the rise of Steve Rogers. And already the chemistry between Atwell and Chris Evans was apparent. Is this the first time I'm saying Evans's name in this pod? <laughs> the procedure itself featured Dominic Cooper as Howard Stark, tying the two Avengers leaders together decades before one was even born. And Richard Armitage moonlights as a HYDRA agent who kills Erskine and ensures there will be no other American super soldiers, just the one Steve Rogers. Though as it turns out, that's enough. I do want to shout out the subsequent scene where Steve chases down the HYDRA agent as he fumbles and trips with all these new abilities and powers, crashing into windows but also profusely apologizing for it. That's Steve Rogers right there. Him leaping from car to car is also a direct homage to Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man film, which, hell yeah. The perfect origin, and specifically his last moments at the end with Peggy, really solidified Steve as possibly my favorite of this theatrical Avengers team. And that gets us to 2012's Marvel's The Avengers, one of the biggest blockbusters of the century, and the movie that firmly established the MCU as a going concern, for better or for worse. In 2022, I have complicated feelings about this film, before even mentioning sex pest Joss Whedon. The movie, on its own, is well-conceived, ambitious, and achieved what people thought would be impossible to sell to modern audiences, an interconnected universe of films that aren't direct sequels to each other, but feed towards a larger narrative. Some other day we can talk about the pluses and minuses of this, because its novelty would eventually wear out, as all other studios tried to create their own universes, mostly failing across the board, and now, in a post-Endgame world, even the MCU feels bogged down by its own connectedness that it didn't through its first three phases but I want to focus on Steve Rogers, which again, I have complicated feelings about in this movie. I don't love his characterization in this. He's a bit too hostile to Tony Stark, which yeah, they have a civil war to build to, but Steve is more bullish to Tony in a way that doesn't feel right. Instead, watch their scene in Civil War in Berlin, where they argue over FDR's pens. That's perfect Steve Rogers. And all of Cap's jokes were kind of clunkers in this movie, especially the there's only one god ma'am and he doesn't dress like that line, and what's worse, they all sound like Joss Whedon jokes. This movie was not written by Marcus and McFeely, who would write all the cat films and the Infinity War endgame combo, and in the Marcus and McFeely movies, Cap's humor is much more appropriate. He's a kind, honest person who pokes fun at his own lack of modernity, but never with bile like we see in Whedon's films. But all that said, I think Avengers 2012 is really what sold Cap to the world, more so than the first Avenger. For this movie, which hoped to bring in new MCU watchers as well as everyone on board since Iron Man in 2008, Steve Rogers and Bruce Banner, aka the Hulk, were our main characters and audience surrogates. For various reasons, they are the ones outside of Circles of Knowledge, unlike Widow, Fury, and Stark so they have to be explained the situation and then react in a way resembling human behavior. I'm not even going to mention Thor here. and whiffed on both movies trying to write that character. But Ruffalo and Evans owned that job and guided this fledgling cinematic universe into a juggernaut. Though I don't love this iteration of Steve, he was still affable, likable, and, well, super hot, even in that spangly outfit. And even the more popular Tony Stark was deferring to Steve as team leader. You could start to see fans gravitating towards Captain America in a way I had never seen before in my lifetime. So I'll just stop there for now. You got a very brief comics history, a Manu history, and MCU history of Captain America. Now let's get to one of my favorite films of all time.
1: On your left. Uh-huh, on my left. Got it. Don't say it. Don't you say it. On your left. Come on! uh.
0: The Winter Soldier has one of my favorite Marvel openings. DC at dawn with Sam Wilson up early as balls going for a run. A man after my own heart. As he jogs, a beautiful shot of the Potomac behind him, Steve dashes across the screen with an irreverent, on your left, to the stranger also running. Steve would harangue Sam like this repeatedly, and after the run, the two would make proper introductions. One thing I like here, they exchange pleasantries, Sam sounds like a fanboy with a defrosting must have freaked you outline, and Steve basically says, okay, TTYL. But Sam presses forward and talks about sleeping in a comfy bed after coming back from war, And a bond is forged. They're both soldiers, and Steve makes his first 21st century friend outside of his avenging circle. Sam also, very importantly, suggests the Marvin Gaye Trouble Man soundtrack for Steve's catch up to do list, a fun running gag. Steve gets his first mission alongside fellow Avenger Natasha Romanoff, aka Black Widow, who I will also stress is much better written in these Russo movies. She has her own sense of humor befitting a know-it-all femme fatale that stands in contrast to her Tony Stark-like jokes in the Whedon films. Maybe I can voice my thoughts on quips and jokes in Marvel movies now. I actually kind of think, at least through Endgame, a little too much was made of it in Twitter discourses. These are action comedies broadly based on the comic stylings of Stan Lee, so the fact that Marvel movies have quips is not a bad thing to me, and for some characters like Peter Parker or Tony Stark, a very important part of characterization. I think the problem is when characters don't have their own distinct voices and senses of humor. whedon ask has caught on as a term recently with all the, did that just happen, or I did the thing, an infantile style of joke telling that is wink wink at the audience. The jokes aren't meant for the characters in the story, they are meant for us in the theater, and everyone has the same exact joke cadence and humor. It's boring, and Natasha probably suffers the most for it in Whedon's movies, as her jokes can be put in Tony's mouth and vice versa, and literally nothing would change. But I do think the Russos, who have experience from Arrested Development and Community, nail this. Nat's jokes in this film are totally her own, a bit flirty, a bit condescending, but never wink-wink at the camera. And the jokes between her and Steve all feel sincere and earned, and directed at each other, whether it's about how Nat doesn't look good in swimsuits anymore, or Steve hasn't kissed anyone since 1945. Okay, digression aside, the first mission. Snake has to infiltrate the USS Discovery tanker to recover plans about a secret new Metal Gear... Oh shit, wait, that's Metal Gear Solid 2. Cap has to infiltrate the S.H.I.E.L.D. tanker Lumerian Star to free hostages alongside Natasha and Shield strike team, headed by Brock Rumlow. Nat has a secret side mission to recover secret plans about a secret project, called Insight. And Cap goes full solid snake and stealth, using chokeholds and non-lethally subduing guards before they can raise the alarm. The first change from the first Avenger is evident here. Cap's shield now has real gravity, some weight behind it, and Steve's punches and kicks literally send people flying. And we see him sprint across the deck, as we did on the Potomac, this dude is faster than any human should be. Steve is able to help take down the pirates who commandeer the ship, though a little friction with Natasha ensues as they have slightly separate mission objectives. We also get a cool fist fight between Cap and Batroc, an Algerian mercenary and long-standing Cap rogue. MMA fighter George St. Pierre was brought in for this, and I really like this clearly shot action sequence, almost staged like a street fighter brawl. I love that Batrock challenges him to fight without the shield, and Cap does, removing his helm as well, and Cap just goes to town. Batrock is tough, but no match for Captain America. And I'll also register now how much I hated what the MCU did with Batrock in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This whole movie, by the way, is structured like a 007 film, befitting the action spy aesthetic. Cap returns to his MI6, the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters in Washington known as the Triskillium. He gives his M, Nick Fury, a piece of his mind about his and Nat's divergent operatives, at which point Fury shows Cap what she was recovering, the operating modules for Project Insight, which are three carriers in permanent orbit that can target terrorists before they do any terrorism.
1: I thought the punishment usually came after the crime. We can't afford to wait that long. Who's we? After New York, I convinced the World Security Council we needed a quantum surge in threat analysis. For once, we're way ahead of the curve. By holding a gun to everyone on Earth and calling it protection. You know, I read those SSR files. Greatest Generation, you guys did some nasty stuff. Yeah, we compromised, sometimes in ways that made us not sleep so well. But we did it so that people could be free. This isn't freedom, this is fear.
0: Steve, being a bit of a libertarian here, rightly points out this isn't security. You are just pointing a gun at everyone's head in the world now, and even if Fury is the most altruistic person alive, which he isn't, this apparatus can easily be seized by fascistic purposes and put towards its own ends, which, hello Obama's drone warfare proliferation that was passed on to Trump. It starts to become clear that Steve is having trouble adjusting to the modern world, Not in terms of whether he should watch Star Trek or Star Wars, but the confusing, muddled morality of this post-war, and now post-Battle of New York, world is a labyrinth he can't navigate. He turns to his past for guidance, first by seeing the Smithsonian exhibit about him, set nicely to the Captain America the First Avenger main theme song, and then visiting his only living friend from those days, an aged and deteriorating Peggy Carter. Peggy rightfully tells Steve he's being way too dramatic and that in the end he'll surely figure out his way. Elsewhere, Fury decides to look at the data recovered by Widow during the previous mission, only to find it locked. By him? That doesn't sound right, so Nick checks with the man above, World Security Council leader Alexander Pierce, played by the amazingly awesome Robert Redford. A couple things to flag here. Back in the 70s, Redford was commonly fan-cast as the perfect Captain America. Several comics from back then, and even modern comics such as Chip Zdarsky's Invaders run, specifically draw Steve Rogers like a young Robert. Additionally, Redford was the star of several films this movie borrows from, All the President's Men, Spy Game, and most of all, Three Days of the Condor, which has a very similar plot. All that's to say, Redford is the perfect casting here. Also, Alexander Pierce is based on the comics character Alexander Lukin, who was the owner of the Winter Soldier in those Brubaker comics, much as he is here in this movie as well. So while he's not a direct comics adaptation, he is inspired by one. Anyway, Fury seemingly convinces Pierce to stall the Project Insight go-live date until Fury can investigate why something seems off. On his way home, Fury would end up being attacked by the DC Metro Police, or at least people dressed as them and using their equipment and cars. This is a very important part of the film's thesis, so I want to highlight it right now. One of the better MCU car chases ensues in that it's actually a car chase focused on the driving, drivers, and traffic. There aren't any flying cars or vibranium suits, it's just a good grounded chase done practically, which I love. Fury evades the cops, thanks to a big wheeler running them off the road, only to be attacked by a mass soldier with a metal arm. Fury is able to escape his wrecked car before the Winter Soldier can grab him. Steve Rogers returns home from his day out, bumping into his neighbor Sharon on the way in. This is Sharon Carter, Agent 13 of S.H.I.E.L.D. and a big part of the Captain America mythos. She's undercover, here as Steve's watcher, at the behest of Nick Fury. She notes that Steve left his music on, which already triggers alarm bells. He doesn't listen to music, so it would never be on, at least not on these fancy new 2014 phonographs. And the music here is Harry James' orchestra recording of It's Been a Long, Long Time, with vocals by Kitty Kalen, the same song that plays in the final shots of Endgame as Peggy Carter and Steve Rogers dance. Steve enters his own place by a window to find Nick Fury just chilling in his home. Rude but when Steve puts on the lights, he sees the hell Fury had just went through. Fury turns down the lights again and lets Steve know there are ears everywhere. Before he can tell Steve more, Sniper Fire Out of Nowhere takes down Fury, who hands Steve the Project Insight data Nat had recovered in the film's opening. Sharon busts in the door, revealing her cover and saying Nick asked her to watch over Steve, And as they contact S.H.I.E.L.D., Steve begins to pursue the shooter in another fantastic action sequence. He jumps from his building to the next and runs through the halls to catch up with the sniper running on the roof. Steve is plowing through the doors and leaves a mark wherever he runs into a wall. It's all super cool and moving fast, but very well and clearly shot. Already 20 minutes into this movie and they've made Cap's abilities much cooler than in the four hours of MCU appearances prior. Steve catches up to the shooter on an adjacent roof and throws his shield, but somehow, the sniper catches it and throws it back with even more force, thanks to that metal arm. The Winter Soldier disappears, and everyone else is left to pick up the pieces. Now at the hospital, we watch doctors perform on Fury, including Joe Russo, one of the two directors of this film. Fury is pronounced dead in front of a devastated Steve, Natasha, and Agent Maria Hill, with Colby Smulders reprising her role from 2012's The Avengers. This is all feigned, of course. They used a banner-invented heart rate pill to simulate death in Fury so he can go under deep shadow cover for the remaining half of the story. But most importantly, it makes space for Steve Rogers to grow into leadership, as Cap is meant to give orders, not be a tool of the government or anyone else. After Fury is pronounced dead, Hill takes the body elsewhere, but Nat confronts Steve. Why was Fury at your place? Why was he killed there? Steve plays dumb, and Nat notes he's a terrible liar, which is good. Steve Rogers should be a terrible liar, because he doesn't really do that. Nat walks off, and Romlo tells Rogers he need- he's needed back at a headquarters. Steve, still a little unsure about everything, decides to hide the thumb drive in the hospital vending machine so it wouldn't be on his person when he met with Pierce. Steve arrives just as Sharon is leaving Pierce's office and gives her a caddy neighbor, on the way in. Just Pierce and Rogers now, and they start things off amicably enough. Pierce's granddad fought in World War II alongside Steve, that's something, right? Pierce talks about his long friendship with Fury and how the assassination attempt appears to be a cover for some black market intelligence scam Fury was running. Steve rightly notes that that isn't Nick Fury, and he passes Pierce's first test, who now knows Rogers isn't a complete himbo. Ultimately, Pierce wants to know what Nat did. Why was Fury there? It wasn't an accident, and Pierce knows Steve doesn't think so either. He leaves Steve with a warning. He's going to find the truth and no stars or shields will stop him from doing so. Not sure what to do, Steve leaves and hops in the elevator down to the ground floor. Don't miss the Watergate building in the background here, very deliberately and prominently taking up half the screen. I'm sure you don't need to be told what comes next. The Cap-Shield elevator fight is maybe the best sequence in the entire MCU, a tight set piece that synthesizes character and action. Steve has the wherewithal to figure out what's happening around him, and his ability to take down a dozen men in a small space while completely surrounded really sells how badass modern Cap is. And put a flag here, this mirrors a Metal Gear sequence, this time from 1998's original Solid Game. Eventually, to escape, Steve dives out of the side of the elevator and uses his shield to brace his fall. Sitwell on the comm says, Are you kidding me? And I remember this is where I in the AMC theaters of South Barrington in April 2014, really started to feel I was watching something special. Cap gets on his motorcycle and goes one-on-one with the S.H.I.E.L.D. Quinjet, leaping up onto it and using his S.H.I.E.L.D. to take down its engines before disappearing into D.C. S.H.I.E.L.D. puts out a search warrant on Captain America, who is now a fugitive. Sadly, they do not hire U.S. Marshal Samuel Gerrard to find him. Back at the hospital, Steve tries to retrieve the USB stick, but Nat got to it first, and surmised that Steve had gotten it from Fury. Steve's rightfully annoyed with Nat's games, and eventually forces her to say something of value. Nat reveals she knows who the shooter is, the Winter Soldier, a ghost who has been killing people for the last 70 years. They don't have any leads on him, nor can they go back to S.H.I.E.L.D., so their last chance is trying to decipher what is on the drive, which they take to a local Apple store, and both Steve and Nat dress up as civilians, they'll feel free to Google their outfits. They are very, very expensive. We get a fun bit with comic DC Pearson making a cameo here. Can I help you guys with anything? Oh no, my fiance was just helping me with some honeymoon destinations.
1: Right, we're getting married. Congratulations, Where are you guys thinking about going? New Jersey. have the exact same glasses wow you two are practically twins yeah i wish specimen uh if you guys need anything i've been eric
0: natasha is unable to decrypt the drive it's being constantly rewritten by an ai to prevent her break-in attempts she is able to track where the file originated from wheaton new jersey where puny steve rogers was recruited into operation rebirth some 70 years ago There's a fun bit where Steve and Nat escape the mall using stealth. Steve is ready to run and fight, but Nat instructs him to act like her partner and be lovey-dovey so as to avert eyes, including a kiss between the two. This prompts the first kiss since 1945 dialogue as they make for the camp. I won't go over this scene line by line, but Steve and Nat in the car is just great character stuff. Two heroes with long, diverging histories trying to find a synthesis and friendship in the middle. The military camp at Lehigh has been long abandoned, but Steve still has flashbacks to his time there. Until, that is, he finds a bunker where it shouldn't be. The same bunker will be used in Avengers Endgame when Steve and Tony look for the Tesseract and Pin Particles after their first attempt fails. Navigating this forbidden bunker, they find a secret elevator down into what appears to be an old mainframe room, with obsolete tech covered in mounds of dust. Well, except the head terminal a giant monitor with a CCTV camera on it. At its base is a USB port, and the way the dust is moved around here indicates someone has been here recently. Plugging in the drive, an AI boots up. It's the Patriots! Oh wait, sorry, that's for the Metal Gear section later this episode. Instead, it's the digital recreation of Arnim Zola, Hydra's lead scientist from the war. As a function of Operation Paperclip, Zola was among several Nazi or Hydra scientists recruited by the U.S. to work in its military and space divisions. I assume y'all know this, but just in case, this is a very real thing that happened. The U.S. and Britain actively recruited Nazis who they thought could help them beat the USSR in the space race and Cold War. A lot of the worst acts of American empire post-war can't be divorced from the Nazis we willingly put at the top of the security state. Zola basically explains as much, as he was able to wield the entire U.S. intelligence apparatus to wage war, control markets, and surveil people as he forwarded the goal of Hydra world domination. And any pesky troublemakers like Howard Stark, Nick Fury, and soon Captain America were snuffed out by the Winter Soldier, which becomes a key plot point going into Civil War but all that exposition, while cool, was just stalling. SHIELD, which we know now as HYDRA, launched a missile on the bunker in hopes of silencing Steve and Natasha. They are able to find cover though, and thanks to Steve's super strength, escape before the strike team arrives to clean up. We get a scene now back at Pierce's home, where he says goodnight, temporarily, to his housekeeper before the Winter Soldier pays him a visit. Pierce, being a normal human person, pours himself a shot of milk. I am not kidding, look at how much milk is in his glass. I'm guessing this was Redford's like sixth take on the scene, and he was about ready to shit his pants from all the milk he had already drank. Pierce gives the Winter Soldier the kill order on Nat and Steve, but his housekeeper barges in because she forgot her phone. Pierce picks up the Winter Soldier's gun and says goodnight to the housekeeper, permanently this time. And now we're back at the start, in multiple ways. First, we're back at the beginning of the movie, with Sam running through DC again. Nat and Steve arrive at his front door, having no other bankable allies at the moment. Another good character scene between Natasha and Steve happens here, as they shower and clean up. And this is where Steve is now back at the beginning, not of this movie, but his days in World War II. He knows who the bad guys are, the same ones of old, and he knows exactly what's to be done with them. Nat is the one who's visibly shaken now, as she's ostensibly been working for Nazis as a member of S.H.I.E.L.D. Her non-committal moral compass has failed her the one time she legitimately thought she was doing the right thing. But Cap picks her up, telling her she's fine, and that now he trusts her more than just about anyone else. We are starting to see Cap, the leader, emerge. Natasha is ready to follow him, her brother, her captain, her Steve.
1: If it was the other way around... it was down to me to save your life and you be honest with me. Would you trust me to do it? I would now.
0: And I'm always honest. Over breakfast, Steve, Natasha, and Sam reason that Pierce is pulling the strings and need to get info on Project Insight to stop the launch of the helicarriers. Sam fesses up to his own history here, dropping his military dossier titled Falcon. Steve and Nat may be on the run, but Sam is not and can help. Steve says he can't ask Sam to do that, but Sam says, Captain America needs my help. Again, we are slowly building up Steve as an aspirational figure to those around him. We cut to SHIELD Hydra agent Sitwell leaving lunch with the late great Gary Shanling, reprising his senatorial role from Iron Man 2. Getting to hear Gary say Hail Hydra is pretty fun, but after he departs, Sam gets a hold of Sitwell and feeds him to Steve. After a good Avenger, bad Avenger routine, they get Sitwell to fess up about Project Insight. The 21st century is an open book, Sitwell starts. In the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all its triteness. Never fading, always accessible, MGS2 told us this 20 years ago. Zola taught Hydra how to read the immense amount of data, creating an algorithm that identifies threats to Hydra's world order, from random nobodies to people like Bruce Banner and Doctor Strange. Let's park on Doctor Strange for a moment because per the MCU timeline, Doctor Stephen Strange would not become a Master of the Mystic Arts until 2016, in line with the release year of his movie. This movie, The Winter Soldier, is in 2014, in line with its release year. So this Zola drop is actually accurately predicting Stephen Strange would become a superhero, which speaks to the efficacy of the algorithm. Watching in 2014, though, this scene was deliciously ambiguous. Doctor Strange was two years away, but without knowing how that movie was going to unfold, this raised the question in my mind. Was this referring to an already operating as hero Doctor Strange, or was it a prediction of the future? That it could be both? Great. I like multiple meanings that can be drawn from a single moment. So that's the gauntlet. Hydra is about to launch three helicarriers with enough firepower to kill every potential enemy in the world. And Steve, Nat, and Sam have to figure out a way to bypass all that and get in to stop everything. They head for the Triskelion, planning to use Sitwell to bypass security and figure it out from there. That was the plan, at least until they're attacked on the freeway by none other than The Winter Soldier. For a movie that's named for Bucky Barnes' alter ego, he's not in it a whole ton. That said, I love that whenever he shows up in this film, the tone immediately changes from Three Days of the Condor to The Terminator. I really like the unbeatable Winter Soldier in this movie and early Civil War. Feels like he kinda got nerfed later on. And again, don't get me started on Falcon and The Winter Soldier, a series I deeply, deeply despise. For those curious, Bucky Barnes isn't a super soldier in the comics in the way he is in the movies. That'll come up shortly though, so hold on to that thought. Anyway, the highway action sequences that ensues is one of my favorites, often overlooked among the great MCU set pieces. Bucky landed on top of their car and removed both the steering wheel and Sitwell from the vehicle. Sitwell's death is pretty gnarly, being thrown into oncoming traffic. Steve grabs Nat and Sam, busts open the passenger door using a shield and gets all three to slide out of the car safely. The Winter Soldier and several goons. Who is it? Goons. Hired oh? goons. Hired goons. <laughs> open fire with machine guns with Bucky brandishing a grenade launcher. Steve uses his shield to absorb the first grenade blast, but it shoots him off the overpass and into a a bus passing below. Nat, whose Elden Ring build is more for dodging than blocking, leaps and rolls through oncoming traffic before jumping off the overpass herself, using a grappling gun in her wristbands to Spider-Man to safety and get in under Bucky's position. She pops him in the goggles, and we get our first good look at Sebastian Stan's eyes as he removes them. Nat takes off down the streets of D.C., which is actually Cleveland, and Winter Soldier gives pursuit. He instructs his hired goons to find Rogers. The goons rappel down to the lower street. Well, most of them do. Sam gets in behind one and gets in that backstab. Ho, 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 now he has a machine gun. Actually, it's some kind of assault rifle, but whatever. The goons open fire on the bus, namely this one guy with the giant Gatling gun strapped to his back, a la Vulcan Raven from that first Metal Gear Solid. It's technically called a minigun, but for an audio podcast to an audience that may not know their artillery, minigun doesn't really sell the size of this weapon. Steve dives out of the bus, picks up his shield in one fluid motion, and rolls into a crouched position, his vibranium shield deflecting all the bullets. He's able to angle some of them off the Gatling gun to take out a lesser goon, just as Sam pops another one from his sniping point on the bridge. With S.H.I.E.L.D. up, Cap now rushes the Gatling goon and gets in behind him for a takedown, and then it's off to find Nat and the Winter Soldier. The score takes a turn here. We had generic MCU action music for the previous scene, but now we get something more ominous, pretending doom for Natasha. On the whole, I think Henry Jackman's score is one of the better MCU scores, only behind the last two Avenger films for me, both done by Alan Silvestri. Again, Metal Gear vibes. It works in the electronic and drum and bass tones while climaxing to more sweeping moments, sometimes invoking tfa light leitmotifs in the process. The Winter Soldier leitmotif I especially think is cool, which is metallic sounding, working in distorted screaming sounds. Says composer Jackman, I did something really, really radical for The Winter Soldier, Because when I first looked at the footage, I was like, he's kind of a mechanized, crazy, violent, unstoppable, rampant kind of half being. I remember thinking to myself, I don't want it to just be an orchestral piece of music. Winter Soldier tracks Nat's voice to a cell phone, a distraction as she tries to get the drop on him behind from behind with a garret or choke string in her wristlets. Another 07 shout here this is what Red Grant uses in From Russia with Love to choke out enemies. Bucky throws her off, but Nat hits him with the widow pellet and puts some distance between the two. She keeps running, telling civilians to get away, always good for a superhero film to do this, but takes a bullet in her shoulder, pinning her down as Winter Soldier positions himself for the kill shot. But wait! Stone Cold Steve Rogers' entrance music plays as he runs down to the ring to save the day, and we get the best hand-to-hand fight in the MCU. I wish I could call out all the little flourishes here. Steve hiding behind the shield to block bullets at close range, throwing the shield only for Bucky to pose with it and throw it back, the infinite number of knives Winter Soldier seems to have, and all the cool knife knife flips he's doing with them. Sebastian Stan did train for this. The high knee kick reminds me of Triple H, and Bucky cutting up a van with just a knife is also metal as hell. I mentioned back in the opening tanker scene that the set pieces in this movie have weight, Steve Shield specifically, but also all the impacts are felt and accentuated. Even more so here, when we have our big face-off between Cap and The Winter Soldier. Part of why The Winter Soldier works so well as an action film is that all of this, including the elevator scene and stuff with Black Widow, are practical, stunt and choreography based. The actual actors share the load with the stunt doubles, and though this film uses shaky cam for the action, a technique I don't love, It's still watchable and specifically in line with the Bourne movies, one of the aesthetic influences. The Winter Soldier himself is a Jason Bourne or Treadwater type as is. This works best in conjunction with the practical effects. The shaky cam continues into Captain America Civil War, but with more VFX heavy action with Wanda and Falcon, it's a lot more jarring. Back to this fight, Steve recovers his shield, which was sticking out of a van the whole time, Gets in an uppercut on the Winter Soldier, and grabbing his face, flips him over and thus unmasking him in the process. We get one of the film's more iconic exchanges here, ripped right out of at Brute Baker's comics of 18 years ago. Bucky? Who the hell is Bucky? Both Steve and very briefly Bucky are confused. Bucky looks down for a minute and then raises his pistol, but Sam swoops in on his falcon wings to kick him away, and Nat shoots off the Winter Soldier with an RPG. Steve is in complete shock after seeing his best friend alive, a ghost 70 years in the making. As he snaps back to reality, S.H.I.E.L.D. forces surround our three heroes. It's very likely they would have been shot on sight, but TV choppers hover overhead, and Rumlow is smart enough to know you don't shoot Captain America on live TV. In a S.H.I.E.L.D. containment vehicle, Steve tries to piece the story together. It had to have been Zola, who was behind it all. Recall from the first Avenger, Bucky was experimented on in the Hydra camp that Red Skull and Zoldar were holding him in, and Bucky's death scene on the train ended up being a Hydra trap for Steve and his Howling Commandos, even if they captured the Doctor in the process. Steve, as he's wont to do, feels personally responsible, which Nat tells him not to, all while she's bleeding out. Sam asks one of the two guards for first aid, but one of them shoves a taser in his face and then into the other guard. It's Maria Hill undercover, and she's a welcome sight to her friends. Well, except for Sam, as these two have no idea who each other are. Hill steals them away back to a hidden base in a nearby dam. Dr. Joe Russo appears again, running to treat Nat's bullet wound, but as Maria says, she'll want to see him first. It's Nick Fury, somehow still alive, though just barely. I'll admit, I bought Nick Fury's death the first time. He was the connective tissue that brought the Avengers together, but now that part had played out. It would be very logical for them to move on from this character if they chose to, especially as this movie was clearly building Steve up to be leader long-term, and Samuel L. Jackson comes with a hefty price tag. Basically, Coulson 2.0, two years after his death in Avengers 2012. Once everyone gets their story straight, it's mission planning time. Hill has three MacGuffins, or goobers in the parlance of Into the Spider Verse. If all three can be plugged into each of the three helicarriers, they can stop Hydra's mass execution of its opposition. Fury wants to salvage what's left, but Cap won't have any
1: of it. We can salvage what's left. We're not salvaging anything. We're not just taking down the carriers, Nick. We're taking down Shield. Shield had nothing to do with it. You gave me this mission. This is how it ends. S.H.I.E.L.D.'s been compromised. You said so yourself. Hydra grew right under your nose and nobody noticed. Why do you think we're meeting in this cave? I noticed. How many paid the price before you did? Look, I didn't know about Barnes. Even if you had, would you have told me? Or would you have compartmentalized that, too? S.H.I.E.L.D., Hydra. It all goes. He's right. Look at me. I do what he does, just slower. Well, looks like you're giving the orders now, Captain.
0: I really, really love this bit, and something perhaps the liberals of the world should take note of. If an institution can be captured by Nazis as such, then that institution isn't worth shit whether it's cops or intelligence agency or militaries. The inclination is to reform, but that rarely ever roots out the cause. It has to be dismantled in full, and I'm so glad Steve gets to vocalize that specifically. But that's not all. The fact that this proclamation, no quarter for Nazis and no use for their tools, dovetails with him stepping into his role as leader, is perfect writing for Captain America. Fury notes that Steve's the one giving the orders now, and this will be the case through his final moments in Endgame. Building up his character so the anti-fascism and leadership arcs dovetail in the same moment, that's great storytelling. That Sam, Nat, and Hill line up behind Steve really makes it hit home. I think a key part of what makes this, and Civil War, work is how they adapt Steve's natural leadership and charisma in relation to his supporting cast. We see Sam already willing to follow Steve, after both were able to open up to each other and find shared humanity in their martial lives. Natasha, one way or another, has always worked for various powers at be, and self-admittedly may have lost her sense of moral direction due to her laissez-faire attitude. Steve offered her a light through the murk. What she thought were his weaknesses, his unwillingness to compromise, or inability to lie or deal with being lied to, are revealed to be his greatest strengths. Steve is having a positive effect on those around him, which we will see even more in this film's final act. But this is why I also don't agree with the Civil War complaints that the middle act becomes more of an Avengers movie until the story heads back to Siberia. As I've argued, Cap's history and pathos is wrapped up in him being a team leader, a literal captain. In the first Avengers, that was a literal title as he led the Howling Commandos, a self-selected team. Here, we see him leading a small group of comrades, starting with just Natasha, but now Fury, Maria Hill, and Sam Wilson have rallied to his side. And in his final solo film, Steve's teamwork and leadership comes in the context of The Avengers, as it should, both reflective of the character, but also in building up to climaxes in Infinity War and Endgame. So while our heroes prep, we get our first proper look at James Buchanan Barnes, or Bucky, as played by Sebastian Stan. He was briefly glimpsed at the Smithsonian, but not mentioned otherwise, and given that he's this movie's title, time to do some really quick characterization to prepare for the film's emotional climax. It's a bit unfortunate that they had to wait this long to do some of this work, but really not much else you can do with the story structure. We get a brief flashback from Bucky's fall and capture. Zola is there to greet him in the snow, which is probably a continuity error as Zola was captured by Cap in the same mission, Bucky disappeared. Or it could be that Zola had put those memories into the Winter Soldier if I'm being charitable, which with this film, I tend to be. Hydra is prepping the Winter Soldier for his next mission, as he's visibly shaken from Steve recognizing him on the bridge. This is all happening in the vault of a bank, which is no accident, just like the use of police in the Fury car chase was no accident. Cops and capitalism are key components to fascism. Pierce is brought in to talk to Barnes directly, and in Pierce's retinue is none other than writer and Winter Soldier creator, Ed Brubaker. Which, we need to talk about Brubaker, and Marvel's lousy treatment of its talent on the comic book end. Brubaker created the Winter Soldier, a major character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and somehow a household name now but the actual person who created him sees almost nothing from Marvel for using this character. He gets royalties for his appearance in this film, as in his appearance as Ed Brubaker in this film, but nothing for the Winter Soldier. The Winter Soldier storyline was the brainchild of Ed Brubaker and his artist Steve Epting, and with the help of editor Tom Brevard, made Marvel resurrect the long-dead character. And Brubaker is not the only one to account for. Literally, Everyone who crafted the comics that Marvel has been making a multi billion dollar IP farm from is not being fairly compensated for their labor. Instead, that money goes to the executive board and whatever causes they want to support, like the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. If Marvel is going to be this commercial juggernaut and be part of Disney's reign of terror, then we can't just ignore how it treats its creatives, its labor, or its production teams, and where it puts its money in terms of material aid or harm. Creating a queer queer character in the background who just so happens to be a cop is not doing anyone any benefits. That bitter note aside, let's return to the narrative. Bucky can't shake his burgeoning memories of Steve, so Pierce orders the hydrotech to put his brain back in the blender and wipe him clean. We see Bucky strapped down and electroshocked to immense degrees of pain. We don't want to miss that Bucky has been brainwashed and tortured himself, a victim in all of this. Steve is also thinking about Bucky, though in a happier context. Okay, maybe not. Not happier, as he's remembering his own mom's funeral. But in that sad moment, he remembers how Bucky was there, offering to help in whatever way he could, because he was there until the end of the line. Steve knows what he's got to do now, and it's not take down the Winter Soldier. Sam gets Steve. It's time to go. Sam wonder if Steve plans to fight in just his street clothes, which of course not. Soldiers need uniforms. That said, I do like that ever since the elevator escape at S.H.I.E.L.D., Steve and Natasha have just been chilling in street clothes. Their skills are purely physical, and I like the down-to-earth vibe this middle act has had but it's big finish time, and Cap dons his first Avengers outfit, stealing it right out from under the nose of Stan Lee, Smithsonian watchman in this iteration. Steve, with Sam and Maria Hill in tow, take the Triskelion comm center thanks to a more than helpful Danny Pudi, who most know as Abed from Community. That's been a runner in the Russo films, with Jim Rash, Yvette Nicole Brown, and Ken Jeong also having appeared in their MCU films. Also, the Arrested Development Staircar is in Civil War's airport fight. Meanwhile, Alexander Pierce is hosting the World Security Council at the very same S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters to toast the launch of the InSight helicarriers. I didn't really get into the council, and it's not that big of a deal now, but basically Natasha is undercover with the digital mask as one of them, a mask that shows back up in her solo movie from last year. Just as Pierce pours the champagne, Steve takes the mic, which I'll just drop his speech here in full as it's pretty solid.
1: Attention all S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. This is Steve Rogers. You've heard a lot about me over the last few days. Some of you were even ordered to hunt me down. But I think it's time you know the truth. S.H.I.E.L.D. is not what we thought it was. It's been taken over by HYDRA. Alexander Pierce is their leader. The Strike and InSight crew are Hydra as well. I don't know how many more, but I know they're in the building. They could be standing right next to you. They almost have what they want. Absolute Absolute control. control. They shot Nick Fury. And it won't end there. If you launch those helicarriers today, Hydra will be able to kill anyone that stands in their way. Unless we stop them. I know I'm asking a lot. The price of freedom is high, and always has been. And it's a price I'm willing to pay. And if I'm the only one, then so be it. But I'm willing to bet I'm not.
0: I won't pretend his speech is insightful. It speaks to freedom and liberty in the vapid way Americans tend to, but I think it's still effective in the context of Steve Rogers and we can see the effect it has on the S.H.I.E.L.D. staff. Rumlow walks into the command center and orders the S.H.I.E.L.D. tech, who I believe is named Klein, to send the helicarriers up now. He stalls and then ultimately refuses. Captain's orders, which is another good bit. Steve's inspiring people to do the right thing. The command center turns into a John Woo chapel scenario as everyone now has their guns out and pointed at each other. Sharon Carter leads Team Cap with Rumlow on the opposing side. A firefight breaks out, and in the chaos, Rumlow enters the launch command, and up go the helicarriers. I'm going to skip over a lot of this in detail, as one of the weaker parts of this film is its fairly conventional third act, though I think that's redeemed by the emotional catharsis between Steve and Bucky. But before we get there, a quick rundown. We get to really see Sam Wilson as the Falcon in action for the first time. He takes on several S.H.I.E.L.D. soldiers, and then one of the jet's using it to place his own goober into a helicarrier. At the World Security Council, Natasha is able to get the drop on everyone and take control of the room, wrestling it away from Pierce. Fury makes his return from the dead here. Using the eye under his eye patch along with Pierce's forced confirmation, they dump all of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Hydra's data onto the internet. This specific bit is right out of Three Days of the Condor, as once the governmental conspiracy is discovered, the resolution involves leaking it to the New York Times for public dissemination. I have doubts about whether the New York Times would ever do the right thing, but hey, it was a movie from the 70s. Fury also has a great line here, when Pierce says that with the push of a button, they can clear the world of a million enemies if they have the courage to push it. Fury's response is, no, I have the courage not to. Steve gets one of his own goobers into a helicarrier, two down, one to go. Steve and Sam make for the final helicarrier, but the Winter Soldier is there to greet them. He rips off Sam's wings and grounds him atop the Triskelion. Steve manages to stay on the ship and makes for the data upload point. Sam, now inside the building, comes face-to-face with Rumlow, and they fight hand-to-hand. Prior to the scene, we see Rumlow fighting his way up, and Metal Gear Solid fans should realize he's holding his pistol and knife in classic CQC pose. There's a reason Frank Grillo was my fan cast for Solid Snake in our MGS casting episode. Okay, so the main event is Steve versus Bucky, and Steve really does not want to fight. He tries pleading to Bucky's humanity, but no response. That brain blender must be strong. The two show down, shield and bullets and knives flying, as Steve struggles towards his goal. He almost gets it in, but Bucky tackles him and they go flying to the lower level, Steve's MacGuffin with him. They wrestle some more, and I guess I should highlight the eminent power of the Stucky fandom, one of the internet's most popular ships. While some of that was born in The First Avenger, it's Steve and Bucky's relationship in this movie and Civil War that really escalated things for the Tumblr community. Steve is able to dislocate Bucky's arm and seems to choke him out with a sleeper hold. He grabs the chip and makes for the drive port, but as he's climbing back up, Bucky starts filling him with bullets. Bucky gets a gut shot before Steve inserts the final chip, but Steve is able to pull himself together and insert it, and Hill gets to take command of the helicarriers. She reduces the target count from several million to three. The helicarriers are now now targeting each other. Steve tells Hill to open fire, even though he's still on board. Despite her objections, she follows through, and the skies above Washington turn into three crashing meteors. The shots of the helicarriers going down is a direct nod to The Ultimates 2, the second comic series by Mark Millar with a modern take on the Avengers, i.e. not the Kirby and Stan Lee origins from the 60s. I personally don't care for The Ultimates' run, either in story or ideology, though a lot of it was clearly lifted for the creation of the MCU. It has the worst iteration of Cap I have ever seen, though. Anyways, one of the helicarriers crashes into the Potomac, while the other crashes directly into the Triskelion, which Natasha and Fury had evacuated. But Sam had not. He was still tussling with Rumlow when one comes crashing through the window. Sam sprints to the opposite end of the hall, and luckily dives right into the chopper Fury was piloting, and they seem to all get away, though no one has eyes on Rogers. Inside the final helicarrier, still afloat for now, Steve is contending with all the wreckage when he sees Bucky, once again one arm dislocated, pinned under metal scaffolding. He he goes to his aid, and when Bucky is clear, he once again appeals to Bucky. You know me, he says, though Bucky refuses. But Steve is stubborn, if nothing else. He can do this all day, remember? He drops his shield into the waters below and refuses to fight back. Bucky tackles him and begins wailing on him. He's got Steve in position to complete his mission.
1: You're my friend. No. You're my no. mission. No. Then finish it. Gives i with you to the end of the war.
0: That line gets through as Bucky stares in bewilderment at his pummeled pal. The moment is brief as more of the helicarrier falls apart. Bucky hangs on with his good metal arm with the slow-mo shot of Steve falling slowly into the water. And it's no mistake the camera lingers here. This shot is very specific. Bucky holding on with one hand while Steve falls away is exactly how Steve going into the ice during World War II was drawn by Jack Kirby. Bucky atop the drone holding on with the hand that would be blown away, and Steve falling. This exact shot was then recreated for the cover of Captain America No. 21 under Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting, Epting doing the cover art as well. This issue was the climax of the first 21 issues of Brubaker's run, before the cap line would give way to Civil War and the death of Captain America. The cover shows Bucky as the Winter Soldier atop an aerial vehicle, holding on with one hand, and once again Cap is shown falling off. The films could not recreate this moment in the first adventure due to the writing decision of separating Bucky's death from Steve's crash, so I do like that they were able to get that key visual in here, even if it's subtle. Steve sinks to the waters below, but Buck dives in after him and drags him to shore. He still looks confused, and Bucky disappears into the distance. We catch up with Steve later in a, ho- in a hospital room, Sam at his side listening to Marvin Gaye. Steve wakes up and greets him with a, on your left. I like the little coda this film has. Nat takes to Capitol Hill to tell off some committee. Again, it's a bit simplistic, but feeds well into the Civil War conflict. Fury is ditching his head honcho of S.H.I.E.L.D. role for now, going undercover and looking to rebuild. And by undercover, I mean pretending to be dead. The main story's ending is set at Nick's grave in Arlington, with a Pulp Fiction reference on his tombstone, The Path of the Righteous Man from Ezekiel 25-17. Again, like Metal Gear Solid 3, this one ends at Arlington Cemetery. Fury tries to recruit Steve and Sam for his own purposes, but Steve's now focused on finding Bucky. Natasha rolls up for her goodbye too, and she pulled some confidential files her old contacts had on the Winter Soldier program and then she disappears as well. All her covers are blown, so she's got to make some new ones. And with that, Steve and Sam begin their search for Winter Soldier, and roll credits. We get two post-credit scene: the introduction of Wanda and Pietro Maximoff as Hydra experiments, though it would take seven years for Wanda to get a proper treatment, but I do like that this was still at a time where these extra scenes were teasing new characters and it all felt very exciting. The end credit scene has us back at the Smithsonian with an undercover Bucky Barnes learning about Bucky Barnes. And that, my friends, has been my recap and series of digressions about 2014's Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Before I continue, I just want to say that this episode is a bit of a trial balloon for me podcasting solo. There's a ton of movies I would like to talk about in detail, and getting out all my little observations or insights is just easier if I parse the movie in full. But if you think that was too much or too dense, please leave a comment so I can refine these for the future. I do want to have the format down before I, say, cover the fugitive like this. So why is The Winter Soldier my favorite MCU film, or even my favorite film, period? Partially, I think it really nails the anti-fascism thing in a comprehensive way. One of the issues with the MCU broadly is that it tends to be very neoliberal in its ideology, which is somewhat inherent to Capes and Cowles, but they try to paper over it with progressivism via representation aesthetics. And probably more in line with the genre and source, big two comic stories, like Star Wars or even the Lord of the Rings films, They tend to talk about concepts like good, evil, hope, freedom, and fascism in such broad strokes that any sort of commentary or insight is blunted. So a comic book film having broadly anti-fascist themes is in and of itself not noteworthy. The general superhero virtues of goodness, community, and perseverance allows this topic to be fainted at often. What makes Captain America the Winter Soldier so strong on this front is that every detail supports its thesis and ties to the character of Steve Rogers. These details range from drone and surveillance programs to militarized DC police, using mainstream media outlets like The Times and Newsweek to launder Hydra's agenda, as seen in Solo's files, or setting up secret fascist headquarters in the vault of a bank and military barracks. The film even goes so far as to implicate the UN and mentions that Hydra leader Alexander Pierce was offered the Nobel Peace Prize. The fascist beast tentacles have truly wrapped around every institution of modern American life. Not only that, but they properly tie its modern origins to Operation Paperclip and the influx of Nazi scientists, at the U.S. government's behest, into its military and scientific ranks. It's a problem that plagues us to this day— as every institution in America post-World War II is informed by white conservative patriarchy and anti-communism, perpetuating itself into all aspects of Western life. And ultimately, what sells the film, and its hero Steve Rogers, is its outright rejection of the Hydra worldview. The most obvious example is Steve rejecting Fury's plan to salvage S.H.I.E.L.D. Steve understands a full-scale rejection must occur if anything other than fascism can take root. But the moment I appreciate this time around is Steve telling Natasha that she may be in the wrong business herself if her quote-unquote nuanced worldview has lost sight of its black and whites. Too often we praise nuance and moral grayness in art and life, but these can serve nihilistic readings. Specifically challenging that is welcome. I think also the way Steve Rogers is written here is just much richer than Whedon's work in his two Avenger titles. This cap is not a scold or fuddy-duddy complaining about language and what God would wear. Instead, we find a Steve who is curious about what he's missed, understanding of the barriers he can't yet cross, and having a self-deprecating attitude about it all. Everyone in his barbershop quartet is dead, after all. This words itself into the fabric of the story quite subtly, as Steve knows someone broke into his apartment because there's not a chance in hell he would ever put his stereo on. But it's not just Steve's earnestness that wins us over, it's his inspirational qualities. Captain America is first and foremost a leader, and this story properly scales him up to be that leader for the Avengers. This isn't just shown by Hill and Romanoff lining up behind him, but how he inspires Sam to take wing again, or how the random tech will not launch the helicarriers because of Captain's orders. There's implicit faith in Captain America, sure, but the film makes plain his words and actions justify it. The film punctuates each act with the appearance of the titular Winter Soldier, upending the spy thriller aesthetic for one resembling the Terminator. Bucky Barnes isn't much more than a tragic type here, but his present holds enough weight with Steve to carry the film. In fact, this is why all the Captain America films hold up. Each film's climax is about Steve's relationships, be it with Peggy, Bucky, or Tony, and sacrifices tied to each one of those. Now, the discourse dictates that these films can't be discussed without decrying the MCU writ large, but I want to posit ways in which this film is the MCU at its best, and how its common flaws work best here. I think visually, this film holds up better than its counterparts. People complain about the washed color palette of the MCU, but here the faded blues and grays offer a stark contrast to the first Avenger or even that first Avengers film. The lack of bright color shows a loss of clarity— a consequence of putting a Nazi-punching super-soldier into the world of neoliberalism and how muddled it all is. Two, the look and feel of this movie feels in line with the look of movies it draws from, from Three Days of the Condor to The Born Identity. The shaky cam specifically is evocative of the latter, but unlike other MCU films, the shaky cam works wonderfully here with practical effects and stunt work. The stunt choreography and fight sequences are the best of the saga, and fight styles and improvements from their last film help fill in what these characters have been doing since the Battle of New York. Which gets to another complaint about the MCU. When all the action is just mindless CGI where our heroes are fighting aliens, robots, and other enemies that are not tangible to the actors, it often feels flat or weightless. But that is never a problem in this film, as this is all human versus human, actor versus actor, stunt double versus stunt double. You can feel the punches in this movie, the impact as Bucky and Cap go hand in hand on the highway, and the weight of Cap's shield so it isn't just a frisbee. And the fact that much of this was shot on location, mostly Cleveland, but also DC and Atlanta, means these tangible aspects are in a tangible space, not a couple paper mache rocks and then a bunch of greens green greens defining depth and geography for us which the human eye will always flag as not real. In terms of fitting into larger cinematic universe as a coherent saga, this film does that perhaps the most deftly. Steve Rogers' ascension as a leader is wholly his journey, but it serves the Avengers team as a whole to lay that character track. It sidelines S.H.I.E.L.D., which had been a sort of narrative crutch for Phase 1, and also helps weaken the overall infrastructure ahead of Ultron and Thanos. The film does this while having a sense of scope never getting so big that the audience wonders where Thor is, for example, and why he isn't helping. Ultimately, it does everything I'd want a comic book adventure to do. It deepens my relationship with larger-than-life characters, speaks meaningfully to its themes, and delivers well-realized set pieces that further those characters and themes. It ends up not only being a linchpin of the MCU, but an example of the best it can offer. Okay, lastly, I just want to run down all the Metal Gear parallels in this film and Cap's arc overall. I know some of you may use this chance to bounce from the podcast, which is more than valid, but maybe listening to me here will help get that Metal Gear hook in you. Perhaps my thoughtful approach to art, or at least what I hope is thoughtful, may make you curious then about Metal Gear Solid, one of if not the most important art to me in this world alongside A Song of Ice and Fire and The Lord of the Rings. If you do end up being interested in Metal Gear because of this, well, I'm happy to shepherd you through playing those games and talking about them, never mind the 50-some episodes of podcasts we have on it. So we noted way back in our third episode, Captain America and Solid Snake do have some overlap. Or rather, there are genes of Captain America in the creation of Solid Snake, who himself is a genetically modified super soldier, who ostensibly works for the American government, or does at first, at least before self-actualizing. Their growing distrust of institutions they work for is key to their character arcs. And I would be remiss to point out that David Hayter, the ineffable voice of Solid Snake, also voiced Captain America in Spider-Man the Animated Series from the mid-90s. David Hayter was also a screenwriter for the films X-Men from 2000 and X2 X-Men United, the latter of which is my favorite non-Logan X-Film. So zooming in on Captain America the Winter Soldier specifically, I tried to call out the various Metal Gear highlights through my recap, but I'll start running through them again. First, I want to call out Steve's outfit in this first half of the film, the shield cap outfit as it's known. It's very much patterned after a Solid Snake sneaking suit, a bit of both Metal Gear Solid 1 Shadow Moses' suit and the more traditional seeking suit in MGS2. MGS-1, being set in Alaska, was a little bulkier with high collars, which you can see on Cap's suit when he's in the office with Fury and later Pierce. MGS-2 specifically is invoked right away, with the opening set piece on the Lumerian Star. In Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, Snake begins the story by rappelling off the George Washington Bridge to land on a tanker, which he proceeds to infiltrate to learn more about a secret government Metal Gear project. Cap infiltrates the tanker Lumerian Star, which is an easter egg for Namor-adjacent Marvel mythos, and though his mission is to save hostages, Natasha is the one getting data about a secret government project. The similarities really come through in the action. The first century Cap seduces is with a sleeper hold, the bread and butter for Metal Gear players since Metal Gear Solid 3. He is dispatching guards left and right, mostly non-lethally, which pacifism is core to Metal Gear Solid, and making sure he dispatches all guards before any alarms can be triggered. Oh, before I get too much further, here is an example of Metal Gear being informed by Marvel Comics. In that first Metal Gear game from 1998, Snake has a support staff who gets on comms with him. His designated weapon specialist, specialist is a former Russian agent named Nastasha Romanenko. Sound familiar? Nastasha even wrote a tell all book in Universe about the massive government conspiracy informing the events of Shadow Moses, not unlike Natasha Romanoff spilling all of S.H.I.E.L.D. Secrets at the end here. The elevator fight scene in this film is still one of the singularly perfect action sequences in the MCU, but shares DNA with the similar elevator fight in Metal Gear Solid. In that game, Snake is alone on an elevator but all of a sudden the weight or max capacity alarms start ringing. He's actually locked in that small space with guards and stealth camouflage, aka invisible, and has to take them out. In both cases, we realize the enemies are locked in there with Cap, or Snake, and not the other way around. The scene that follows the elevator is Cap taking on the shield Quinjet one-on-one, evocative of the Hind D fight against Liquid Snake from Metal Gear Solid 1, or the Harrier fight against Solidus in Metal Gear Solid 2. And the scene in the mall is very much like a Metal Gear stealth sequence, where Steve and Nat are able to hide from S.H.I.E.L.D. officers as they navigate their way out of the mall. Zola's algorithm is the next thing to flag, as it is not dissimilar from the Patriot AIs in Metal Gear Solids 2 and 4. For the non-Metal Gear people out there, in MGS2 we find out that American society has basically been running by an algorithm, for super AIs that process all data from personal, financial, military, and intelligence to synthesize solutions to further the American project and its imperial stranglehold over the world. The, di- the digitization of society allowed the Patriots access to create total information control. The 21st century is an open book, after all, and Zola is reading it, not unlike the Patriots. There's a lot of other little flourishes here and there, too like the guy with the gatling gun a la Vulcan Raven. Or Rumlow and Bucky both using CQC, close quarters combat, which involves holding a knife in one hand and a pistol in the other, so they can go from firefight to close range knife fight with ease. This was made famous in 2004's Metal Gear Solid 3, and is the creation of Naked Snake and the boss in that game. Yes, there are a lot of different characters named Snake in Metal Gear, all for a very good reason. Speaking of Naked Snake or the man who would be Big Boss, the last thing I want to highlight is how Caps arc from the Winter Soldier to Infinity War is basically Big Boss's arc through his games, Metal Gear Solid 3, Peace Walker, and Metal Gear Solid V. In both, we see America's greatest living soldier, both in actuality, but also as a legend fed to the American people grow disillusioned with the American government, and form their own splinter cell to do what they feel they must to fight systems of control. In Metal Gear Solid, we see Big Boss start his army without borders in hopes to push back against the Patriots while not being a tool of the government or anyone else. Likewise, Cap starts his own secret Avengers with Natasha and Sam, and possibly Wanda, and they keep doing their heroics even as the U.S. government and U.N. is after them following the events of civil war. And in both cases, America's greatest soldier, be it Captain America or Big Boss, are labeled as war criminals by the powers that be. And I'd be lying if I didn't point out that some of these thoughts started popping into my head when I saw bearded Chris Evans in the Infinity War promo art. He cuts a very snake-like figure with that look. I think I will wrap up there for today. It was a treat, really putting all of my Captain America Winter Soldier love into a single episode for y'all to enjoy, and I hope I deepened your love for that movie, presumably while you're listening to this at all. And in the name of positivity, I'll save my thoughts for Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus for another day, as I think it's my least favorite MCU entry, in part because how it betrays what this film did. But like I said, that's for another day. I'm gonna do this all day. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is Frontiers at gmail.com and at PodSans Front on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Which manuclearbomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. A quick shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, I can do this all day.